Hello and welcome to What Were You Thinking? I'm Laura Round and in this podcast I ask politicians and opinion formers about the people, places and experiences that have impacted their thinking. In this episode I speak to the wonderful Ayesha Hazarika. Ayesha worked in Westminster for many years as political advisor to Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband before becoming a stand-up comedian, broadcaster and columnist. We take a trip down memory lane, hearing all about the rather unusual situation of being shared by two senior politicians, Harriet and Ed, and how she ended up on the stage. Which people have inspired her thinking and which people had a particular impact on her life and career. And as is so often the case, there are some key role models and mentors who spotted talent and encouraged as well as inspired. And of course, we chat about some of the more surreal experiences she encountered whilst in Westminster. This episode is supported by BAE Systems, one of the largest UK employers. With £3 billion export sales from the UK annually, BAE Systems has a central role in the engineering and manufacturing fabric of the country, supporting 124,000 high-value jobs across the UK through a supply chain of some 6,000 companies. BAE Systems works extensively with its supply chain, SMEs, regional partners and universities to deliver long-term economic growth and productivity, technological know-how and to develop skills. BAE Systems helps its customers to stay a step ahead when protecting people and national security, critical infrastructure and vital information. They are using their knowledge and technologies to reduce the environmental impacts of their activities and have set themselves the target of achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions across their operations by 2030. Ayesha, thank you so much for joining What Were You Thinking? It's a real privilege to have an actual broadcaster on the show. Well, it's an absolute delight to to be here. Thank you so much for, for asking me on. No, thank you for saying yes. So yes, there's loads of stuff I'd love to cover with you today because you have such a cool sort of variation of like experience of, you know, working for politicians and then having a comedy career and now being a broadcaster. So lots to get through. And I thought maybe we should start with one of the three questions that I love to ask every guest, which is which person has had a real impact on your thinking and potentially politics um so being greedy i've sort of thought about this and there's actually two people who i would say uh in terms of where i'm just now first person's pretty obvious and that is harriet Harmon, who i worked for for uh, a very very long time i worked for her when she was in government uh, when she was deputy leader of the labor party and she was also leader of the house of commons and she was also minister for women and equality so um we had like a long stint working together about like eight years wow and, and we worked on which is really long for a special advisor most mm. special advisors don't really have that long a relationship um it's like they're like marriages they're like starter marriages your like relationship they often like yeah. break up quite quickly um and she was and is a huge influence on my life she is you know probably this country's leading feminist she's done I think more to change the landscape on gender equality than, than anyone else I, I can think of and just continues to be quite a pioneer and she's very, always been very very supportive um 
of me. So that's um, the that's the first person. The other person is just somebody who really sprung to mind this week because sadly he passed away quite recently, and that's um, William McPherson who did the McPherson report. And why this is important to me is that I was a young civil servant press officer at the Home Office working on the police desk when uh, the McPherson report came out and it was into the handling of the murder inquiry of Stephen Lawrence, um, that terrible, terrible racist murder, which happened in Eltham in South London. Mm. And he investigated why the Metropolitan Police bungled it so badly. And he coined this phrase, which I think was a defining moment in race relations, really shaped me and really has influenced my thinking on race since then as a person of colour and he came up with the phrase institutional racism and that was a very very big moment for race relations for me it was like the penny dropping in terms of understanding something that was going on that I could sort of see and I knew it was happening but there wasn't a word to describe it Um, and he named it gave it a name so yeah they're two people that have influenced me Interesting. And and you mentioned that you were in the civil service at the time and you're referring to institution. Is it was there anything in particular at that time that you felt why, you know, what made it more pertinent for you that you were experiencing? Um, I think it was more just the, the fact that in, in all big institutions and in all sort of walks of life, people um, of colour were and still are discriminated against. And there is, there's two types of discrimination. There is horrid racist shouting in the street, calling somebody like horrible names or the kind of what you now get on, on Twitter. But then there is the more subtle uh, discrimination, which you see in structures in big institutions. And again, I think that sadly still is the case. It is changing. And I think that's why it was very uh, profound for me because I was I was, it was quite young. I was in my early twenties, and I had you know just started working in the in the civil service, and I I just never ever saw anybody other than white men in positions of power and seniority. Mm. And like I said, I was working on the police desk, so I was going to a lot of meetings with the police as well. And again, I mean, there hardly were hardly any senior women involved, um, and so it just really. I suppose it just kind of connected with me. It was sort of like a, a wee light bulb went off. And, and I think a lot of people kind of sort of went, ah, yes, that's mm. what it is. That's what it is. So, yeah, it was a, also I was looking after the Lawrence family. I was sort of one of their press officers on the day and oh. it was um, incredibly moving. They are an amazing family. So, so strong, so dignified. I mean, there was so much media attention around it. It was a huge day. And I remember the aunt um, of Stephen Lawrence, you know, saying to me, he was just an ordinary boy. He could have, he wanted to be, I think he wanted to be an architect. You know, he was working hard at school. She Mm -hmm. was like, you know, he is just like anybody else's son or brother. And, and I just remember feeling like so moved by that because I was thinking, God, that, that could be, that could be my brother. You know, that could be, that could be some, somebody I know. So yeah, for all those reasons, it was particularly pertinent. Yeah, yeah. So, so you were you were a civil servant, a young civil servant, and um, did Harriet Harman just sort of spot you? How did that come about? 
Well, no, not at all. So I was a civil servant in a number of different uh, government departments from 1997. I started off in the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food, as it was known, the, the glamour, a very glamorous start. It was known as MAF at the time. Everybody used to joke it was NAF. Um, but it was an amazing place to work. It was really, really interesting. It was the tail end of the BSE food safety scandal. Oh. So it was quite interesting in terms of looking at a department that was very, very uh, damaged and you know not really functioning very well but not short off, of its um yeah not short no. of its dramas no. but that was a very interesting place to kind of cut my teeth so um I started off as a very I actually started off as the admin girl in the press office and um, moving boxes and packing up boxes there was an office move and then I delivered posts around the building for a while and then I became a, an assistant press officer so I really did work my way up from the absolute yeah. bottom okay. uh then yeah. I went to the home office and was there for a couple of years then I went to the Department of Trade and Industry um, where I worked on a number of different issues from energy issues to um, employment regulations and I ended up being press secretary to Patricia Hewitt but then I actually left the civil service because I could feel myself becoming more political mm. and yeah. I you know there's a line and as a civil servant you have to be mindful of being neutral and I could feel that I was having this yearning to get more stuck into the political side of things yeah and um so I sort of thought yeah this is probably a sign that's time for me to leave um I worked very closely with special advisors and you know thought well that would be quite an interesting job but I didn't really think that sort of somebody like me could be a special advisor I didn't really there weren't there were some women there weren't many women there were no people of color at all like at all it was totally um you know it was a very mono sort of, and it was very much who you knew and if you were in with the right people mm. so I, I wasn't really that was not my background I didn't come from a hugely political background so I left and I went off to work um for EMI a big record company so did something completely different how cool um which was very cool that's the <laughs> coolest job I ever had yeah. but um I did sort where of get, did then all go wrong I know where did it all go wrong oh dear honestly my uh, EMI bring that, I mean it was so ridiculous you know I had spent all this time in the civil service like which was which I loved but it was so square and then suddenly I'm like my boss is going okay I'm really sorry to do this to you but we have to go on an overseas trip do you mind coming to the Grammys with me in LA and I'm like oh well god if I must you know <laughs> I, I, I suppose I can just try and like bear it and things um but I did end up doing a short, when I was in the civil service, I did a short stint in the number 10 press office twice. Mm, and I think that's I, a good experience. I was amazing. And I kind of sort of got spotted there. And then a fantastic woman called Kate Garvey, who basically, <gasps> I know Kate. Kate, Kate's amazing. Yeah. She used to run, she was like Tony's gatekeeper, Tony Blair's mm. gatekeeper. And she used to run all his events she said to me, do you want to come over to the dark side and work on his on their election campaign in 2005 and be part of the team that travels around with him and organise events? I was like, oh, yes, please. So, um, yeah, that kind of gave me a really interesting glimpse into being purely political, political, and I loved it. But I had a really good time at EMI, so I did two years there. Then fast forward the clock, uh, Gordon Brown wins the deputy. No, Gordon Brown uh, becomes leader and Harriet Harman wins the deputy leadership. And she had appointed, I think, one special advisor and suddenly needed more because she 
I don't know if she, if she thought she was going to win. So she did quite a rare thing in politics, which is she had an open interview process. So mm. um, I just applied for it. And that's quite unusual because that normally, is, yeah. as you know, special advisor jobs, it does tend to be again, do you know somebody? Do you know somebody? Um, yeah. But somebody did get in contact with me and said, look, Harriet is looking for somebody. Do you want to put your CV in the ring? And I did. And then I got the job. Excellent. And like massive, massive shout out to Kate for spotting talent <laughs> and bringing them in. I mean, that yeah, must be she... like, I can only imagine what it would feel like if you're sort of at the start of your career and you have someone that sort of senior in that sort of position spotting you. That must be like, you know, those, those moments really, they count for a lot, don't they? Yeah, they definitely do. And it is so important. Like, um, like and I think that's how you definitely get different types of of people in particularly into politics as, as you and I know politics and politicians across the piece talk a good game about wanting to to open up the business to people they really do but when push comes to shove it is still incredibly nepotistic it's a very yeah. very small um world it's you know somebody's worked in this think tank or somebody's worked on this person's campaign and then you, you're just in so yeah. I think it was really it was really to Kate's credit you know she the because I, I probably wouldn't have you know I, I was interested in being a special advisor and I had had reached out to a few people but I got absolutely nowhere with it like I just wasn't seen as a particularly credible person because I just wasn't in in the gang um, yeah. but then Kate when we worked together at number 10 you know Kate was like actually you know you're you're really good and you should you should get more involved like and I was like oh I don't know if somebody like me could do something like this and she was like yes of course of course you could so yeah. it's really important isn't it that tap on the shoulder is really really important yeah and particularly I think to get women into politics yeah need to be asked but also yeah mental the role of mentors you know even at that sort of like you know I don't I, I don't know what your relationship ended up being with Kate but you know that's almost if it, even if it was just that moment it's kind of like a mentor you know snapping you up no it's re that's really nice that's a really nice story so so then from that moment eight years of Harriet yeah that's a that is a that is a really long time I don't know if I've heard other examples of of people bad staying working for their principal for that long that's um yeah that's I mean a massive I also, testament I did also in that time I, I worked for Ed Miliband as well yeah. so it was kind of shared um between Ooh, how does that happen <laughs> Oh my God. I mean, as if politics isn't like stressful enough in the world of politics to then also be shared by two secretaries of state. How does, or, you know, two, two, two politicians, how does that work? It was, I mean, it was, so there was massive pros and massive cons. There was huge pros because um, Harriet was deputy leader and Ed was leader of the party so it does really help if senior staffers are, are you know mm. connected it, it's funny the relationship between the leader and the deputy leader's office should be very good but it can actually be quite a tricky relationship um, to, to manage for various um, reasons yeah. um, so the fact that I was obviously very, very close to Ed and I was obviously very close to Harriet, you know, did smooth things along as well. Like I always knew what was going on. Sometimes one of the frustrations for the deputy leader's office is they're not always in the loop. 
in yeah. terms of everything that's going on with the with the leader's office. So that was a, that was very advantageous um, for to kind of have that everything was quite integrated. You know, I sort of knew what was going on, could sort of keep you know Harriet informed on, on things, just smooth things over. But when it would get tricky is when both of them demanded my time at the same time then that that would be quite tricky I remember yeah. there was one day where I was like preparing Ed Miliband for Prime Minister's questions and Harriet had a big trip to to Brussels and like I just couldn't be in two places at, at once and then I remember this thing. I think I had to do PMQs and then just race straight to the Eurostar and like get on a get on a this is obviously in the olden days where we could travel um, and go like straight to Brussels to catch up with Harriet for all these meetings I remember just feeling like absolutely exhausted but anyway in a way that's a really nice problem to to have you know to be working for two really powerful people you know in a political party and to be you know wanted and needed as an advisor is very good but sometimes that would cause a bit of a bit of strain so if if uh, if they were asked, you know, if uh, who do you think ultimately had you were most loyal to? Do you think Harry would say, "Well, it's obviously me"? You can't make me answer that question. <laughs> so I was a very good. I'd make both of them feel very that they were the most important person. Oh, obviously, that is a skill. That is a <laughs> skill. Um, but no, it's good, and I think also I think that's a testament probably of them having a good working relationship. Yeah, I was going fun. to say they got on really really well partly as well because Harriet gave Ed Miliband his first ever job no way yeah so Harriet hired <laughs> Ed Harriet spot you know we were talking about talent spotting mm. Harriet spotted Ed Miliband as being a real talent and hired him and then Gordon Brown poached him off mm. um Harriet but so um Ed and Harriet like how always had a really really good um really good relationship very affectionate relationship That's very nice. warm relationship and so where, where's David in all of this? I'm not as au fait with Labour in a politics, but was David already working for us? That's a good point, actually. Yeah, I presume David was um, at this point. I think, you know, both boys are just, you know, steeped in politics. So I think they had mm. kind of found their own, found their own way. In. <laughs> Very good. So, um, so what place, I mean, a uh, place would you say um, has, you know, impacted your life? I know this is really boring. I think it's Westminster Tube Station and probably the pubs around Westminster. <laughs> I think Westminster as a whole, because so much of my particularly like because it was my first proper work was in was in Westminster. So what was I? I was like, I think I was like 20 when I first started working in, mm. in Westminster. And of course, it's still. Yeah. So I would say it has to be um, Westminster. I just feel like they are all the kind of nooks and crannies of Westminster, the the big buildings, the the pubs, you know, the tube station, like you just know, you know, I just know it like the back of my hand. And, yeah. you know, I've had sort of so many big moments of my life happen around Westminster, you know, so it's probably the place that I feel just a huge, like, you know, I feel, com I feel like when I'm there, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is like does my it feel like home yeah it does it does it does you know yeah. I've had so many you know coming of age moments you know particularly in my 20s and, th and then yeah. In my 30s yeah I've been 20 years I've sort of you know kind of became a sort of fully fledged human being there if you can call us Westminster insiders human beings many people will probably dispute that heavily <laughs> no that makes that makes sense based on um the conversation just now I mean that makes a that, that answer makes a lot of sense and is uh is 
to be expected. What would you say your favourite things are of Westminster and whatever, you know, the things that wind you up the most or, yeah, frustrate you about it? So what do I love about it? Um, you know, when when things were normal, I mean, I don't know what the new normal will look like, but there is always this amazing buzz around um, Westminster. It's great to bump into, you know, so many people and just catch up and, and you know, it's all of that is great. I like the, you know, you can't help but be struck by the history when you walk into the Palace of, of Westminster. I mean, it, it never ceases to kind of, you know, you know, make me sort of stop and, you know, gasp because it is so beautiful mm. and it's so old. And I think the debating chamber is absolutely amazing in Westminster. One of the things I was hugely privileged to do was to have a ringside seat, particularly for Prime Minister's questions, because, you know, being part of the team that prepped Ed Miliband, um, you know, you would you would be sitting in the press gallery every Wednesday watching proceedings. That is an amazing um Yeah, what an atmosphere. I'm I'm really jealous of that because um my boss had uh, the half hour slot before PMQs. <laughs> and that was as exciting as it got because obviously like the chamber would start, you know, people would arrive early and just not listen to <laughs> the answers that just be gossiping or whatever and then um you know the prime minister came and then it was like oh this is a moment and then obviously we had to leave, had to to, leave for number to... 10 uh, starters to take our place yeah <laughs> you could just hide in the corner and just sort of don't mind me I'm just but you're right it's what is amazing is watching the chamber fill up and yeah. it happens so quickly and you can see all the gossiping it's fascinating seeing who's plotting who's sitting next to each yeah. other you know what yeah. um, you know it is it is it's great for people watching so i think that's they're the kind of they're the bits of westminster that i i loved um the bits that i didn't love are um it's not particularly um it's not very modern atmosphere to work in it is still very much i think quite a sort of boys club um you know, I don't get me wrong, I've, I've had like a lot of fun there, particularly, you know, with all the receptions and the bars and, and all of that type of thing. But I don't think it's a very healthy place. I don't think it's a very healthy um, atmosphere. And we know that to be true from the fact that the, the Me Too movement, you know, also came to Westminster. Mm. Um, Big time. Yeah. Sexminster. Yeah, Pestminster. Pestminster. Um, yeah. I do think that there's just a lot more that could be done to modernize um parliament yeah. as well uh you know i think it could be made much more gender friendly much more family friendly i think it could be should be more welcoming i mean we talked about this earlier welcoming to people who have not just come from you know very privileged backgrounds and have supreme confidence um we still have a long way to go i mean you're more like i mean racial representation has got better but you know you're still more likely to see a black or asian person cleaning an mp's office or serving lunch than actually being an mp i mean as i say that is changing yeah. on on all sides but you know more needs to be done more needs to be done to get more working class people um there as well so it could just do with a bit of a sh it could do it still does need a, a big big kind of sort of shake up yeah Totally. So talking of, um, you know, different type of shakeup, but I mean, since your time, you had to endure Jeremy Corbyn, 
which must have been well I've heard you talk about so I know that was a painful thing I think for you to to witness and then now we've got Keir Starmer so lots of lots of change um in labor what what are you making of it and um you know how how is he doing and obviously you're still you know I know your loyalty is like as, as honest as you can Aisha. <laughs> Well, I mean, I will be pretty honest. I, I, you know, hope I generally try to be honest. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was um, really, really, really disastrous for the Labour Party. I was sympathetic as to why Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party. I I wrote a piece um, at the time saying it was a sort of, it was kind of a testimony to the fact that, in my view, Labour had lost its way for quite a long time. And I would even say towards the end of our time in government, we um, lost our way. I think we lost our radical heart um, as the Labour Party. The Labour Party is there to represent sort of, you know, left of centre politics. It is meant to be standing up for, um, you know, people having a very, very hard time. And I think we did become quite managerial towards the end of our time Um, in in office. I mean, I have spoken freely about the fact when I was putting through the Equality Act uh, with Harriet Harman, which is a really big, important piece of legislation, quite often the the, the most opposition we came up against was internally from other Labour Party, you know, ministers and and who I thought were very conservative in in their views on equality. So I kind of understood why the membership was yearning somebody who was much more left wing. And also there was an authenticity to Jeremy Corbyn's narrative. I was in the room when he made his very, very first speech pitching to be leader of the opposition. Um, it was there was no press there. It was a very preliminary uh, meeting. And he wiped the floor with all the other candidates because he had a, an argument which was passionate and lucid and, um, you know, he believed it. And so I can see why why he won. However, what he did, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't, I wasn't sort of against every single policy idea he came up with. You know, I am quite a sort of soft left person. I thought some of his policy ideas were, were, were great. However, he did not seek to win the trust of the public. If anything, he sort of, you know, sort of stuck two fingers up to the public in terms of what they thought of the party and, you know, what he did in terms of heralding an era of toxic anti-Semitism in the party was absolutely horrendous. And this outrageous culture of, of such over-the-top bullying, you know, Jewish members had it a lot, women, I suffered it a lot, you know, rampant misogyny, rampant bullying, rampant really? anti-Semitism. Yes, I mean, well, do you not see Twitter? Try not try to avoid it where okay, I can. That's probably, that's probably quite nice. <laughs> You know, all you have but to no, do but if, what- is if you... I mean, Jeremy. And, I mean, I, I don't. I, I haven't heard as much of the misogyny piece. I think that's interesting. Yes, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's supporters were, you know, famous for, um, you know, going after women, you know, particularly Jewish women. Well, yeah. Um, and you know, women who who disagreed. I mean, it was it was quite a well documented thing in terms of just how nasty all the pylons were and how, um, you know, the the amount of abuse uh, women who spoke out who dared to contradict Jeremy Corbyn would would get so right. I, I was and but what about like within so that sort of support is then on Twitter but was it also prevalent in Westminster could you sense well it? I well I mean social media was the 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 big means by which Jeremy you know Corbyn's fans would sort of communicate but in Westminster I mean well you saw the hounding of 
of number of female MPs. I mean, Luciana Berger is the yeah. is, is the biggest one. She's a very, very good friend of mine. And I could not believe mm. what Luciana went through. Um, similarly, uh, Margaret Hodge, I mean, Ruth Smith had yeah. a very, very difficult time as well. Ruth came on the show, actually, and her, her personal stories were just, I mean, oh, my God. I, and I, I said to her at the time, I, I knew it was bad, but, you know, some of the stories, um, I just... I didn't realize just how bad, you know, yeah. you read about it in the papers, but then hearing a sort of direct personal account. Um, and I guess, you know, to almost like answer the question I posed to you, I guess, uh, and maybe this is wrong, but I can imagine the fact that they didn't try to prevent or speak out about obviously the, the anti-Semitism element, but also the more broadly, uh, the more, you know, misogyny more broadly, that must have been, that's really where they had a leadership role to play. And it was, it felt like a vacuum oh I mean it was more than a sort of vacuum it was a, a it was kind of willfully it was sort of sending a, a kind of a you know a, a sort of dog whistler and then sort of you know just turning a, a blind eye as as um mm. as, as people were attacked but look the Labour Party has always been highly divided and and very very factional I mean the, there has never been this position of nirvana within the, the Labour Party. For anybody who knows the history of the Labour Party, even from the beginning, the Labour Party was split between the more you know, radical end of the Labour Party and the more moderate end of the Labour Party. So that has always been the Labour Party, but things just really spiralled um, over the last five years. So I, you know, I could understand why Jeremy Corbyn appealed to a lot of people, and I understood that some of his po- uh, policies were were sort of popular but his you know handling of so many things were was absolutely terrible and did the Labour Party so much damage mm. so in comes Keir Starmer very very happy that Keir won um, I think he um, is a very very decent man and he's very smart he's got good principles and good values and has dedicated his life to public service in the crime prosecution service super super smart guy so i think he's a i think he's a very 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 good individual um and i think but he inherited a party which was an absolute basket case a party which got thumped uh in the 2019 general election um and a party which was being investigated by the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which the Labour Party, in fact, Harriet set that up. Harriet, I was working for Harriet when we set up the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Little did we, in our wildest dreams, would we imagine that, you know, about 10 years down the track, they would be investigating us for like, you know, anti-Jewish racism. I mean, you just couldn't make it up. So he came in, inherited this absolute, like horrendous, horrendous situation. And I think he has done a very, very good job of stabilizing the party. His first job was to start cleaning up the party, which he has definitely started to do. And he started to build very important bridges with the Jewish community. He has sent out quite a strong, you know, zero tolerance signal on anti-Semitism. There have been lots of, um, you know, suspensions and um, even expulsions on that type. So he's definitely cleaning up the, the party. So that was his first step. And then I think his next step was to sort of show to people, look, I'm not the same as the person who went before me. I am not Jeremy Corbyn. And I think he's done quite a good job on that. Um, He's definitely closed the gap in the polls. But now he's got to move on to the stage, which is, you know, selling a bigger vision to the public. This is the sort of third stage. And in some ways, this is 
this is the this is obviously going to be the most difficult phase, particularly because his leadership was born in the middle of this pandemic. Keir Starmer has never done a speech in a room with human beings in it. Imagine that. Yeah, He's coming that up weird? to his anniversary as leader and he has never, ever, ever even done a speech to anybody in yeah. a room, apart from a camera and Gosh. a sort of man with a mask. You know, Crazy. so and it's very it's very difficult for him at the moment because on the one hand the public do not want to see a labor leader being kind of crassly opportunistic when there's a pandemic going on and over 120,000 people have lost their lives they do not want to see that and all the polling shows that the internal polling of the labor party shows that the internal polling of the conservative party shows that any poll polling shows that however on the other side there are a lot of people who are very angry with the government and they're saying, well, why doesn't he criticise the government more? And why doesn't he call for, like, Boris Johnson to resign every day of the week? Well, difficulty with that is it's just not going to work. That's not how you, um, that's not how you uh, win power just by screaming resign. I mean, when I worked for Ed Miliband and Jeremy, Co I mean, Labour has, been, has spent the last 10 years demanding that the Conservatives resign. And guess what? They, they didn't and they went on to win two general elections so just screaming resign at people guess what it's not like a winning political strategy no. but it is hard for Keir he's got a huge mountain to climb Scotland is a nightmare for the Labour Party yeah it'd be very hard for him to win Westminster without winning seats in Scotland at the moment that is looking very very ropey he has to try and win back these red wall seats as well um and that's going to be quite a very very um tough challenge if he wants to get a majority he'll have to get a bigger swing than Tony Blair did in 1997 so he has got yeah. a very very big challenge ahead of him so what do you think is a bigger challenge Scotland or the Red Wall I think you can't pick one or the other they're both he can't win without these without both but which which one is will be harder to crack Again, I think it's. I think Scotland does provide a very difficult um, conundrum because of independence. There's a lot of people in Scotland who were Labour supporters. They've now gone towards the SNP because they want a second referendum, and they won't even listen to anything that Labour has to say unless Labour backs giving the Scots a second referendum. So, from that point of view, Scotland is probably going to be more difficult. But remember, um, the Red Wall is also tough because. It's quite a big deal for people to break with years of familiar family tradition and vote Tory. Um, a lot of people don't want to feel that they've made a mistake. That's interesting. Have you seen any polling on, on that? Well, I mean, I've, I haven't seen polling on it, but I know kind of anecdotally in terms of phone-ins that I've um, done and anecdotal you know, chats with MPs and things like that in that area. Mm. People voted. It was a very, very big deal to cross the line and vote Conservative for a lot of people. They did it because of Brexit. And I think they want to double down on their choice. Interesting. And they like Boris, don't they? They just Yeah, uh, a lot of people a really, really, really like Boris. But it doesn't mean that their votes are in the bag for forever. Mm. You know, on the flip side to my doubling down um, line... Once people break their own whip and they vote for another party, voters can become very promiscuous. Exactly. Yeah. Reminds me of, um, well, it's a very different political system, but in the Netherlands uh, where I grew up, you know, you, you have coalitions and so many political parties 
pretty much everyone's a floating voter. But yes, um, that that is uh, that is really interesting. So, have you got an object that you know have thought of that has impacted your thinking? I know it's well, tough, I think probably question. if 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 there's if there's one object that probably makes me sums up all my work, it's um and my journey, it's um it's a it's a notebook and a very and a good pen because. I just always like scribbling things down like I just I'm a I'm a voracious note taker and I take notes everywhere I go um I'm I'm quite I mean I have got the old tech but something doesn't go into my head unless I write it down and I remember when I first started uh this is actually kind of a Harry anecdote I remember my first day working as a special advisor and there was another new special advisor and we were so excited we were starting our first proper grown-up exciting job in politics and we were like yeah we're just like the west wing it's going to be like so cool we had our first meeting with harriet and she just totally bollocked us and we were like what have we done wrong and she's like where is your notebook and we were like we'll just put it all up in here just remember all And she's like no 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 you will not just remember all every meeting you come to with me you have to have a, a notebook and you have to keep notes of everything and it was such good advice because I have kept like notebooks that go, I have got 20 years worth of, you know, notebooks. I've got so many. And oh I, my so that, God. Yes, wow. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> good I noted to know. Everything. What about diaries? Oh yes, diaries. I keep a diary oh. as well. I keep a diary. It's mainly my diaries like, oh my God, I really need to like lose weight and sort my hair out. And that has been like the constant thing for like 40 years of my life but um but th- yes yeah, so I think a notebook like I always love having a good hardback you notebook. should not be writing those negative things in a diary that is bad that is bad <laughs> policy that's nonsense and yeah, you should be writing positive is the whole rage with lockdown it's like gratitude journals yeah I know like, but flip like it around I know I do try those but I just like oh I think it's I think I'm too cynical it's, it's a Glaswegian in me I just can't do all that kind of like hey happy it's too Gwyneth Paltrow for me <laughs> makes sense makes sense but sorry so yes yeah, so notebooks taking yes notes. I think probably notebooks like I think a notebook is probably the object that I kind of associate my political life with the most a notebook and a good pen like a nice hardback notebook and a good pen so is this where you write down jokes when they come to you yeah cool so so tell us a bit about your journey into comedy how did you how did it develop so I think it all developed because I had a bit of a quarter life crisis when I was working at the department of trade and industry and I remember going out for a drink with my very good friend Julie and we were having a bit of a like oh my god we're so young that we're so young at the time given like how old I am now but anyway we were like oh my goodness my life is over like it's so boring everything's so boring everything's so boring and uh, we were in a Westminster pub as as I said all the big things in my life happened in a Westminster pub and she was like why don't we make like a fantasy list of all the things we would love to do if like we could do anything we wanted I was like that's a great idea you know one of those like let's so I think she wrote sort of I think she wrote like being a singer or like a jazz singer or something and I wrote down being a stand-up comedian and then she was like oh my god that is brilliant she was like you'd be amazing and ever since I was young I have you know 
I sound really big headed, but you know, other people told me like you're funny and you made people laugh. And I think when I was at school, I got bullied a lot when I was first starting out as like a baby, baby, baby brown person in a very unforgiving kind of hardcore like white school. Um, so I kind of figured quite quickly that humour was a good defence mechanism, and if I made mm. people laugh, they wouldn't bully me. So like from a young age, I kind of worked out that humour was quite important, and. Um, and it stopped you getting bullied, which is good. So everyone had always said to me, oh, you're really funny. So she was like, you've got to do this. And anyways, weeks passed, you know, just carried on. And then she saw an advert in the Evening Standard saying, um, you know, do you think you're funny? We'll come and have a go. And it was this evening class in stand-up comedy. And she was like, this is a sign. You have to do it. So she made me do the course and she came along and did it with me. And it was absolutely amazing because on that course, we're like, some amazing people like this guy Greg Davies who's now like a massive star was on it Rod Gilbert (laughs) and we all did our first stand-up gigs together loads of brilliant comedians that you now see on tv all the time they we all did this this startup start and start a stand-up course together and it was such a lovely group of people and we were I mean you didn't really learn how to be funny but it just gave you the confidence to just like go up and, and and do it but what was so funny is the first gig we did, it was all friends and family, like the entire DTI came. It was absolutely brilliant. It was just like full of really drunken civil servants and civil servants can drink a lot. <laughs> and um, so you go out on stage, you're dead, dead nervous and you do this gig and everybody just like laughs and roars with laughter and is like clutching their side. You're getting rounds and rounds of applause and standing ovations. So you come off and you're like, oh my god I'm a comedy genius like (laughs) step aside Don French there's a new funny woman in town and then you're like but of course you only did well because it was all your drunk friends from the DTI that were like in the audience (laughs) so then I launched myself onto the open mic circuit and it's like um guys is this on like I've just made like a joke and there doesn't seem to be like any any is, is this on can you can you actually hear me at the back and people are like f off or taxi next so you go out <laughs> to the open mic circuit and it is unforgiving it is brutal and I kind of plowed on but for some reason I just loved it I don't know why it's also a masochist so I plowed on in the open mic circuit and just got a bit better and a bit more confident and then miraculously I got signed by an agent again I can't quite believe I got signed in the car park of McDonald's somewhere by this like agent guy (laughs) and then um I just started doing tons and tons of gigs so I led this double life so I was I was a press secretary to Patricia Hewitt who was the trade and industry secretary by day and then at night like three times a week I would change out of my suit and heels and then you know like it was like a and then emerge as a scruffy comedian and I would go to a tube station on the edge of London and get picked up by loads of comedians and we would like drive to Manchester and do a gig and I'd get home at three in the morning and then go to work the next day and I did this for like three years that is really cool it's really not cool cool. it's really no it is it is no I think that's that really bad I just loved it I just loved it because it was so different from Westminster it was like two completely different worlds yeah that's nice and so, and then post um, working for Ed and Harriet, you uh, used those eight years, eight years worth of material in your notebooks and diaries. <laughs> <laughs> and you um, you sort of re-emerged at Edinburgh Fringe, is that right? Yes, I did. And that was also due to a bet um, that I lost that I ended up doing stand-up again. <laughs> so so the- who, who was that bet with? 
that bet was with an amazing woman called Jude Kelly, who used to run the South oh, Bank Centre. Yes. And she runs this brilliant festival called Women of the World. And before the uh, 2015 general election campaign, so I went to this, she had an event, she put on, she always puts on these amazing events. And then afterwards, um, she had like a little drinks thing and I, and I was chatting away to her and, um, you know, I'd always just make her laugh by telling her all these like mad stories about what was going on. And she said to me, Aisha, you've got to, you've got to do something with it. She's like, you've, you've had all this amazing access. Very few women have, have ever, you know, been in the rooms that you've been in and you're really, really funny and you've got a great way of telling stories. And she said, um, if for some reason you don't, Labour doesn't win the general election, will you promise me that you're going to start doing stand-up again? And I went to her, Jude, so confident am I that Ed Miliband will be Prime Minister and I will be in Downing Street as a very senior special advisor. I'm happy to put my hand out and shake yours and make that agreement because it's never going to happen. I mean, we're going to win with a huge landslide. Such was my idiotic belief that we were going to win the general election. And of course, we didn't win the general election. We didn't win the general election and Ed Miliband resigned like in the morning. And um, I get this message from Jude Kelly basically saying, a deal's a deal. <laughs> and I was like, I'm still in mourning. She's like, I don't care. And I was trying to get out of it for like months past. And I kept going, look, I'm just mourning, Jude. I'm mourning the loss of, you know, I need more time. And then she really, Jude, Jude Kelly is amazing, but she is really scary as well. And she summoned me to her office and she sort of went, we had a deal. What kind of message does it send to, to other women if you haven't got the balls to sort of do this? She was like, you can, you can back out of this if you want. And this gave me this icy stare and I was like, I'm not going to back out in a really whispery, weak voice. <laughs> and so well, good honour. Jude Kelly made me get back into stand up and it was brilliant. It was the best thing she could have done for me because um, I did I did. I sort of wrote a show for her festival and then I worked on it and then I took it up to the Edinburgh Festival and I toured the country and then I did another. So, yeah, I went sort of on tour for like two years after that with two stand up shows. One was called Tales from the Pink Bus, which kind of heavy clue in the title. And the second one was called State of the Nation, which, again, kind of clues in the title. Yeah. Awesome. And now you're presenting Times Radio shows and you're on television all the time. You like keep popping up on like royal documentaries as oh, well, by the it's way. Hilarious, it's isn't it? it's hilarious. Yeah. I've become obsessed with the royal family. It's just like, who is this weird brown Glaswegian woman popping up, wanging on about the royal family? But no, I love it. You're very good. You're very good. Um, so just to uh, final few minutes that we have, um, quick fire questions. So what is the most scandalous? Give us a bit of a diary story, Aisha. What's the most scandalous experience or funny or sort of crazy moment you've you've experienced in Westminster? It's got to be those nights out. It's got to be those nights out. This was like, so this was in the era of, um, oh, I mean, this was oh, like, so what you, this is basically between about 2010 and 2015. Um, now, it is well documented that Labour politicians love a night out on the terrace and then they love going on to a karaoke bar. And I think those nights out were scandalous. They were outrageous. They were, I mean, how anybody held on. Scandalous how? Well, just because everybody was incredibly drunk and, you know, 
dot 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 and it was just yeah it was I kind of look back and I just think I actually did have quite a responsible job at the time and all of that shenanigans were, were going on um yeah so I would say that they were the you know normally the ringleader was Tom Watson as well like he was the sort of like he was the sort of the he would always kind of be at the, the center of everything um oh yeah there was also a lot of there was a lot of also not just going to karaoke but going to l- like little italy do you know little italy oh my goodness there's this place yeah. in soho and it's this kind of like night spot n-i-t-e spot and um it was just oh my god we just like we go there and just be, it was so awful just seeing so many like senior labor politicians like dancing really badly and like <laughs> letting this is before down. social media was like was this not would that have not been open well, to no, so i think social media thank god at that point was not at its nadir as it no. is sort of now um because now it'll yeah. just be uh going viral within no time so um who's your favorite um non-labor politician or advisor Oh, who is my favourite non-Labour politician? Um, or advisor? Ah. You, you can mention multiple. I do have... <laughs> if it's not too hard. Good, that is a, that's a good, that is a good question. Um, who do I like from the other side? This makes me sound really tribal. I do actually respect... Obviously, there's Laura. I mean, obviously, your good <laughs> self. I mean, obviously, good... Who else? I do have some... Um, I'll tell you, I think is really good as well. Who I often um, debate, Salma Shah, I think is really, oh, yeah. really good. Yeah. Um, she was Sajid Javid's advisor. Um, recently, I've been paired up on Times Radio with Lord Ed D- Ed Vasey, not oh, Ed Davy. Yeah, Lord Vasey, and we do have quite a laugh. I can see that. Good pairing. He's we- great. He, he is, is he's very and he's very um self-deprecating yeah, he's very self-deprecating he's um but i suppose that the the obvious one who i mean who again just in weird twist of fate and we were absolute sworn enemies but then he ended give up giving me a, a great break is george osborne how did he give you oh, of course with the standard the standard so he gave me my first ever yeah. regular column um amazing on the standard yeah. which was which was which was i think weird for both of us really because you know i had sort of been part of the team that you know had been you know against him and david cameron and you know part of ed Miliband's um team um so yeah that was that that was pretty um odd and we very um, magnanimous dis- yeah like yeah that? i kind of you know we sort of disagree profoundly on lots of things and probably still disagree profoundly on lots of things particularly economic um policy but um you know he was a very interesting person to to work with brilliant Aisha thank you so much for coming on what were you thinking thanks so much for having me it's been such a pleasure Thank you so much for listening and downloading. If you enjoyed that conversation, please leave a review and subscribe and obviously tell all your friends and family and tweet about it, etc, etc, etc. But if you have any questions you want me to put to guests or if there are any people that you think I really ought to get on the show, please do let me know. You can get in touch via Twitter. I'm on at Laura Round. Thank you. Until the next time.